As you sit down, go ahead and take your Bibles out and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And I say this a lot, um, but I'm going to say it again today. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. This is so, so good. Uh, A couple things for you. First, you're going to see a man over here in the corner with a camera. Everybody look at the man with the camera now. Okay. He's going to be getting some content for our communications department here as we go. So now you don't need to look at him. We're going to focus on God's word. All right. So you see him walking around as as we go about the morning. I just want to also give you a quick update on the situation in Haiti. Pastor Nestle, his family, and Harvest Quadabouquet. Um, his family is in a safer location, just so you know that. Um, but Pastor Nestle has gone back into Quadabouquet, and actually they are meeting right now in this moment. And he said, listen, our church is gonna gather together as long as is possible and until the Lord says otherwise, okay? So they're doing that this morning. He's been there all week uh, serving their faith family in different ways. He cannot get back into his neighborhood because of the gang still, so he hasn't been able to get home. So keep praying for them. Keep praying for God to work through a horrific situation. Also, please pray for wisdom moving forward as we consider uh, what the best next steps are uh, for Pastor Nestle and his families to both be able to have the opportunity to serve this faith family that is in Quadabouquet, and yet so that his wife and his daughter can have some reprieve from the situation that they've been in. Marley, their daughter, I think it's been six months since she's been able to go to school. And so they even need a location where she can actually get her schooling accomplished and do some stuff like that. So continue to pray for that. Continue to pray for peace. Continue to pray for wisdom in that situation, okay? Uh, All right, let's dive into this. John chapter six. We're gonna be looking at the first 21 verses in this passage, and uh, as we go into this, I'm just going to read the first 15 verses, just, and then we'll go back, and we'll start working through them, and the reason I want to do that is, uh, with narratives like this, sometimes it's easy to just drive in, dive in and start grabbing different principles and truths and things I'm supposed to do, and we don't first just stop for a minute and root ourselves in this story to help ourselves see better what's what's happening here. And we're gonna do that by starting off just reading this section, okay? As we dive into this, Lord, open our eyes so that we might see marvelous things from your word this morning, Lord. We love you in your name, amen. Chapter six, verse one, here we go. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee which is the Sea of Tiberias, verse two, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Verse four, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him because he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, he said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he said, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. 
Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up. They filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. All right, back to verse one, kind of this verse one through three here. After this, so this is taking place about six months uh, after all that we saw in chapter five. And because of what we see in verse four, it's probably one year away from Christ's crucifixion at this point. So it kind of roots you in the moment. Like, think about this. The disciples have no idea how long they have with Jesus. At this point, honestly, they have really no idea that they're even going to lose him. And they've got one year, one year till this all happens. And what's happening? So Jesus is getting away with his disciples. Uh, They're going to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, um, the hill country that's there, now known as Golan or Golan Heights. And there's a a large crowd that's following them. And because of the altitude there, they probably could have looked out and seen for miles as this crowd is walking around the Sea of Galilee and growing in number as it goes. And these people, it says they're following because they saw the signs and the healing that Jesus was doing. So the reasons that they're following him right now are physical in nature, not spiritual. Why do you follow Jesus? What are you looking for from him? Is it, is it simply physical blessing? Or is it something more than that? This is a question that's gonna be pressed on us, especially next week as we step into the rest of chapter six. Uh, Look down at verse three. It says, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. As we look at this, we haven't answered this question yet. What is a disciple? We've seen it coming into fruition in these pages before this in John, but we haven't really defined it. And I think it's an important moment to stop and just define what a disciple of Jesus is before we go to next week's text and what's gonna be asked of us there. Uh, This word in the Greek is typically translated into the English either as disciple or follower. Okay, It's, it's a student, really simplistically, but of sorts, because it's not a student like we think of a student just sitting in a classroom. This is a student that learns from their teacher, but in a way that finds them bringing their lives into conformity with the life and the teaching of their rabbi. That's why a lot of people now in modern English have taken up to calling a disciple of Jesus an apprentice of Jesus. Because of what that looks like in, in our language translates really to what we see a a disciple being. Uh, And we see this in the Great Commission. If you don't know what the Great Commission is, it's uh, Christ's commission to his church. And we find it in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And it says this, all authority, Jesus says, 
has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, so the church goes sharing the good news about Jesus. And as people turn to him in faith, we gather those people back into his church where they are baptized in the triune name of our God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then they are taught. They're taught what? They're taught all that God commanded you? No, 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 no. They are taught to obey all that the Lord has commanded us. That's, that's the difference. That's the student difference there, right? Being a disciple of Jesus, it's not merely informational in nature. It's transformational. Like we are being conformed into the image of our teacher, our savior, our Lord, our, our king, as we live in obedience to him. And the really cool thing about the Great Commission is, is it comes back around on itself, doesn't it? So as we go, walking in obedience to the commands of the Lord, we'll do what? We'll make disciples, one of his main commands. And then as we make disciples, those disciples walk in obedience to all that the Lord has commanded. And what will they do? They'll make disciples. Around here, you You'll, you'll hear us describe what a disciple of Jesus is using our three W's that we have on the wall. A disciple of Jesus is someone who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, faithfully and increasingly worships Christ, walks with Christ, and works for his glory. And in this text and across John, what we see even is there's this, this physicality to being a disciple of Jesus. They have left behind their old life and now they are even physically following Christ. That's a disciple. Let's keep going. Verse four. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. This is the second Passover of Jesus's ministry. The third one is gonna be at his crucifixion. One year One year left. Verse five, lifting up his eyes then, seeing that a a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. First, uh, even though Jesus knows that this crowd is not following him for the right reasons, he's still here is gonna be gracious and compassionate and love them and feed them and care for them. And he asks Philip, why does he ask Philip about this bread? I think it's because Philip was a local. Philip was from the area of Bethsaida, which was not far from here. So Philip would have known where the good bread shops were. Um, When I read this, I was like, I feel a little like Philip because I always know where the good bread shops are because I have a wife who prefers good bread to flowers. And so I always have outlined where the best bread shops are in case I need them on a moment's notice. And we have some pretty good ones around here and you are loved, but I'm not gonna tell you where they're at. <laughs> but he comes, he comes, he's like, where are we to buy bread, Philip? 
I love that because Jesus loves to use questions to draw out the hearts of those he's teaching. Good questions are the key to understanding. And I would just even encourage you as you are making disciples in your home, in your workplace, in your small groups, as you're sharing the gospel with people, use good questions to draw out people's hearts, to draw out your children's heart, to draw out your spouse's heart, so that then you can, based on their answers, take them to the truths from God's word and show them from there. Jesus does that in a masterful way. Uh, here, I can almost see a twinkle in Jesus' eyes as he asks this. Uh, so much so John wants us to see that because he includes this parenthetical statement so that you catch it. He's like, he's like hey, and just, so, and just in case you didn't see what's going on, Jesus knew what he was gonna do. He's just trying to draw Philip in here. And picture them. Here they are up on this hillside, looking down at this growing crowd that's coming towards them. And Jesus leans over to Philip and he's like, how are we gonna solve this problem, Philip? What do you think we should do? Take, take all the schooling you've been getting from me, take, take everything that you've been observing about me and apply it to this situation. What you got? What you got? Verse seven, here's what Philip's got. Philip answers and said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even just get a little bit of bread. 200 denarii, denarii is about a day's wages. So this is eight months, eight months of salary. He's like, and we could not even feed these people enough so that they wouldn't be hungry anymore. Philip is like, we need more money, Jesus. His answer should have been, I don't know how we're gonna do this. This is, this is too big for us. But I bet you know Jesus. Verse eight, and another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? People, uh, five loaves and two fish. Okay, don't think of this like a big loaf of bread or a loaf, sliced loaf of bread like you get from Costco or wherever you shop. Instead, is what this is, is this, this bread was more like the size of biscuits um, or maybe even like a, a medium-sized kind of tortilla size. That's what we're working with. And the fish, this isn't a tuna, all right? This is, this is really more like sardines that would have been packed as part of this lunch. And it's interesting this, with this here. Either his disciples were totally unprepared, which I have a hard time believing because they knew they were gonna go away with Jesus for a time away from the crowds. Like you would think they would think to pack a lunch for that. And if they didn't, we find out later, they probably came across on a boat here. They're fishermen. You're telling me they went all the way across the Sea of Galilee and no one thought, hey, let's throw a net in and get our lunch. None of them, but either they're totally unprepared or they had lunch. They just weren't offering it up. It doesn't tell us, but. And then we see this unnamed boy contributing his lunch and, and possibly this is even hinting at the faith of a child in comparison to the faith or the lack thereof of Jesus' disciples. And then Andrew, Andrew did what? He went out, he looked for supplies, just like Philip looked for money. 
He's like, we need, we need more supplies to do this, Lord. We only have five loaves and two fish. And what he forgot, what he failed to realize was five little loaves and two fish is an abundance when Jesus is the chef. And, and as you read this, don't be, don't be too hard on the, on the disciples here because it's easy for us to do that and be like, come on, guys, didn't you see this? But remember, Jesus had yet to do anything like this. They'd seen him work miracles, but they'd never seen him do anything like, like this. And so what's happening is they just haven't allowed their, their imaginations to explore the places where God plays. They hadn't allowed their imaginations to, to explore the possibilities when Jesus is with them. Do you? Do you dream and pray about the things that you might see Jesus do. The miracles that he may allow you to witness. This person is unchangeable, not with Jesus. This situation is impossible, not with Jesus. This sin is unconquerable, not with Jesus. This disease is incurable. This war is unstoppable and inevitable, not with Jesus. He shrugs at what we think is impossible. And Jesus is here trying to get them to recognize that no, no money, no strategy, no plan, and no supplies were going to solve this. And how often we do the same things and we go straight to those things, the money and ideas and logic, when God says, I want to work a miracle. And so often we've, we quickly forget who we're with and what he is capable of. The disciples here, they need a miracle. And there and our only hope is Jesus, the Son of God, Christ. And he wants them here in this moment, in this account, to see their desperate need in this physical situation so that later he can point them to their desperate need spiritually. Look down at verse 10. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the, the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Okay, so 5,000 men. At this time, only the men were numbered, so we have no idea exactly how many women and children were present there. Okay, some have estimated that they think this could have been upwards to 20 to 25,000 people that had come to this location, okay? So think of it like this, Gamebridge Fieldhouse. Some of you are like, Gamebridge, it's where the Pacers play. Gamebridge Fieldhouse, I think it seats like 17,000, so more than that, okay? Lucas Oil Stadium, which there's more of you here today because they're not at Lucas Oil Stadium. That was a joke. <laughs> it's okay, it's a laugh. <laughs> um, Lucas Oil Stadium's like 60,000 or so, I think. So this is one-third of that stadium is gathered here saying, we're hungry. And what's Jesus do? Look, he takes those five loaves and those two fishes and he does what? He gives thanks. He's thanking the father for his provision. 
What's the father's provision? Five little loaves and two fish. And he's thanking him. I think he's thanking him for what he has given him first, first and foremost, but he's thanking him for more than that here. I think he's thanking the father for what he is going to do in his provision in the next moments. In verse 11, he gives them food. How much? As much as they wanted. Our Savior gives us everything we need according to his perfect wisdom. I hope, I hope maybe you're hearing a few hints of a passage of scripture here. It's Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes them sit down in green pastures. It was specifically mentioned here that it's green And what's he provide them? As much as they wanted. He makes me lie down in green pastures. With him, I have all that I need. Here in a little bit, we're gonna see how he leads them beside still waters. Look at verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, that could be translated, and when they had eaten until they're satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. They're completely filled up, satisfied. They want for no more food. As I was reading this, I thought of Ruth chapter two, verse 14. If you remember that account, Ruth comes, she sits at the table, an outsider, unwanted by the rest of those that are at the table. She sits down at the table of the Lord of the harvest. And what she do? It says she eats until she is satisfied and she walks away with leftovers. That's exactly what's happening here. Verse 13, so they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Some people think that there's maybe some symbolism here. There's 12 baskets and 12 apostles representing the 12 tribes of Israel and God's people, the redeemed, the Israel, the new Israel and so on and so forth, which, okay, maybe, but I mean, just think about this just practically. These 12 disciples had labored along with the Lord all day long to serve maybe 25,000 people their dinner. This is the Lord with 12 baskets left for those 12 saying, do what I've called you to do. Do what I call you to do. Obey me, serve me. Later in John 21, he says, feed my sheep. Do that, do that, and I've got you. I've got you. I will provide for you. How gracious of him for his disciples at that moment that after spending their day probably exhausted from feeding this crowd when maybe they don't even understand why they're doing this, he says, yeah, and I'm providing for you too as my disciples, as my, as my sheep. This would have been especially gracious of him. Imagine if they had been stashing their own lunch. Would have been like, like, oh man, I've got my lunch. Like, I'm not offering it up. Like, I need that. And then Jesus is like, oh, here's a, here's a basket full of food for you to end the day. Look at verse 14. 
And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is referencing Deuteronomy 18, 15, where there was one promised a coming prophet that was gonna be like Moses, but greater than Moses. And it's referring back to it now. They're like, maybe this is that prophet. So, so far, so far, you've, you've heard Old Testament references from Psalm 23, Ruth chapter two, Deuteronomy 18. Here in a minute, we're gonna make some connections to Exodus chapter 20. There are so many Old Testament references and allusions and connections in this passage. I'm gonna put a few of those. We're gonna put them up on the screen for you. There's just some. There's just some. I would encourage you, like if you don't have a good study Bible or a Bible with cross-references, get that. And when you see the little number by that verse, look down at the bottom and it tells you a passage, go read that. It's incredible. But these are just a few I came up with just, just sitting down and studying this text this week. And as you go through this and make those connections, you can't help but see the, the beauty of God and his, and his word and his plan and his sovereignty as he weaves together redemptive history. Your Bible will come alive to you if you will not just skip over those references. But, but as you do that, which do that, all right? But as you do that, don't miss that Jesus just stepped up in front of 20,000 people with a, with a couple crackers and some sardines and fed them till they were stuffed. Because sometimes it's easy for us in this point in redemptive history with the, with the entirety of God's word to just get wrapped up in, oh, cool connection, cool connection, cool connection. That's amazing, that's beautiful. And miss, miss would have been, what it would have been like to stand with Jesus in that moment. And he's like, yeah, that's enough food. We're good, let me give thanks. And you're like, what? And then all of a sudden, as you're passing out, I don't even know when this miracle happened. Like, did it happen when Jesus broke it? Did it happen in the baskets? Like, I mean, did Jesus just like break something, put it in a basket and they go and they pick this thing up and all of a sudden they're like, this thing's full, what's going on? Or did this just keep coming and coming? Like, incredible what they would have been witnessing and what we're meant to witness through their eyes in this. Look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come And take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So so the people now, they're like, maybe this is the prophet. Maybe this is him. This is the Messiah. Let's make him king. And Jesus here, he's trying to prepare to do a spiritual salvation work. But in their minds, it's like, this guy's here. It's an election year. We got 5,000 people. Let's do this. This is the king we want. He'll give us lower taxes and new government. He'll help us right now go take down Rome. He's shown he'll give food for everyone. He'll make us physically comfortable and safe. And listen, as Jesus, as as we are in this text and next week, he isn't denying physical need and saying that the only thing that's important is spiritual need in our lives. How do we know that? Well, he actually feeds these people. That's how we know that. But here's what he's trying to get them to see is, I'm the king you need, not the king you want. 
And he makes it very clear, it's not time for his crucifixion yet. And he is here to lead them out, not right now of physical bondage. He's here to lead them out of spiritual bondage, out of their slavery to sin. He's here to accomplish a new exodus. Let's finish off this section, verse 16 through 21 there. It says this. And when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and they got into a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. Now, it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. So they leave without him, which I find interesting. And the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, the other accounts in the other gospels tell us it was about the three o'clock in the morning by this time, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So they've been rowing. They've been rowing for hours against the wind. And what happens here? They finally, once again, just like in the last account, they're coming to the end of themselves. And they find themselves in desperate need. And actually, even better in this scenario, the last scenario, what did they do? When they found themselves in need, they went for practical solutions, didn't they? Well, what about the money? Well, what about the supplies? Here, they can't even do that. They find themselves completely out of their depth. And once again, they're unable to solve the problem that's in front of them. And then here shows, Jesus, shows up Jesus walking on the water. And look in verse 20, what he says. He says, it is I. In the Greek, again, ego me. It means I am. And this, this could be, it has been used just simply as a, as a phrase of greeting. Okay, so you could read this as, hey, it's me, guys. <laughs> but because of the situation that we have right here, because he's, he's walking on water, which by the way, another connect, connection, Job chapter nine, verse eight says the only one that walks on water is God himself. Uh, because of the I am statements we're gonna see in the weeks ahead, I believe this is Jesus showing up and very clearly saying, I am is here. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Uh, what are they afraid of? Uh, the other gospels tell us that there's some fear because he might be a ghost. There's some fear over the storm. So there's this aspect of fear that is just the situation that's in front of them, that they're facing the physical peril. And I think the fear here is connected back to two passages in Exodus. You don't have to turn there. I will, and I'll read them to you. This physical aspect of the fear, I think is connected back to Exodus chapter 14. In verse 10 through 14, we find ourselves, here's where we're at. The children of Israel have come out of Egypt. Moses is like, let my people go. Ten plagues, okay? Finally, Pharaoh's like, okay, get out of here. They take off. They come to where? The edge of the sea. The danger of the sea in front of them and now a pursuing Egyptian army behind them. And here's what happens. It says, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and they said, 
to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? I mean, just think about what they're saying. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only be silent. That's incredible because here, as, as the children of Israel are like, did you just bring us to the sea to destroy us? Like, this is why you brought us out of Egypt? The disciples here in this moment at sea are like, did you just feed us? Did you just teach us? Did you just use us all day long to accomplish this wonderful miracle just to turn around and let us die at sea? And they're terrified. So that's one aspect of fear. I think the other aspect is, is a proper fear of the I am, of God himself. And that alludes back to Exodus chapter 20. Again, I'll read it for you. Exodus chapter 20 finds us on Mount Sinai, the giving of the 10 commandments. And here's what happens in verse 18. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And Moses said, they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said, don't fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The people of Israel are like, whoa, that's God, thunder and lightning. I'm terrified. Who am I to stand before God? Moses, you go up. We'll hang back here. If he fries you, we're good. Right, that's, that's what's happening. The disciples similarly, here they are terrified of the storm. They're rowing for hours. All of a sudden they see something on the water. They're like, oh my goodness, we're either gonna die by storm or we're gonna die by this ghost that we see walking on water. Then all of a sudden he speaks. And I, wa- I wonder how they heard it. Did his voice thunder like Sinai over the sound of the waves? Or did they merely hear it thunder in their hearts? It doesn't tell us. But in that moment when he says, I am, I can imagine a different terror that welled up inside of them, right? That temptation to say, let Moses go up the mountain. I'm staying here. He says, I am. And then he follows it with, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am, but, but it's through me that God draws near to you. How so? He gets in your boat. <laughs> and, then, and then you're miraculously taken to your destination as he goes with you. That's incredible. These two miracles are setting us up for next week's teaching and all of the I am statements that we're gonna see in the weeks ahead. And Jesus here, he's, he's graciously illustrating what he has been, and what he will continue teaching both of them in this narrative and us. Here's what that is. He is the great I am who 
miraculously and compassionately provides everything for his people. What are you going to provide, Lord? You going to provide what I need? Are you going to provide for me physically? Are you going to provide for me this? Are you going to set up your earthly kingdom now and just take charge on earth? Are you going to provide me this? Or how about this? Lord, I need, I need this. Lord, I need, I need, I need. And Jesus is like, let me tell you what you need. Here's what you need. You need me. And I'm the Messiah. And I may not be the one you want, but I'm definitely the one you need. And he is here to accomplish God's perfect plan of salvation. And he is here to rescue from spiritual bondage. He's here to lead you out of your captivity to sin. And by grace, through faith, give you eternal life. That's what he's here for. Jesus is enough. He's sufficient for all of our needs. He's powerful beyond all all our comprehension. He's gracious and compassionate. He's the I am. He's our access to a relationship with God. He's our perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if we trust him and believe, he draws near and he saves. He is wonderful. And he is incredibly 100% God and fully man. Would you pray with me, Father? Oh, Lord, there is none like you. (laughs) Boy, your disciples... These people saw that on that day. Lord, help us to see that otherness of you in the text here by your spirit, in our hearts with eyes to see by your spirit. Help us have eyes to see where there is none like you even daily, Lord. Open our eyes to see what you're doing in and around us in every moment protecting and providing and using for your glory. Lord, help us, help us to have imaginations fueled by an understanding of your greatness. I even think, I even think right now, Think right now of all the conflicts, Lord, that are taking place around our world. I know it's nothing new, but for some reason right now, for me personally even, and I think for others, it feels especially heavy and near and ominous, Lord. And um, we serve the God who can do the impossible. So Lord, I just want to remember some of these places and these people even right now. Lord, be with Haiti, the unrest and the violence there, Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Sudan and Ethiopia and Myanmar and so many others, Lord, where there is horrific conflict happening even in this moment that we sit here and we worship you. 
Lord, would you act in this moment in ways that only you can? Would you physically bring peace to these areas of the world and cause these different sides to lay down their weapons and stop the killing? Would you bring spiritual peace around the world, Lord, through your church? Would you provide for your people, protect them, help them to endure, Lord, give them boldness and faithfulness to carry the gospel forward and to love you and love others even in the midst of some of the worst possible physical circumstances that there are here and now, Lord, so that the good news about you would go forward and we would see many drawn to yourself for your glory. Do a work, Lord, that we can't even imagine at this point and come quickly. Come quickly and reign and rule, not merely in our hearts, Lord, but here in your eternal kingdom. And until then, give us, give us the desire and the faith and the endurance to take the hope of the gospel to everyone who needs it, Lord. We love you so very much. You are wonderful in your name. Amen.